Praise the Lord. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Um, Eddie said that um, it's a sin to preach a boring message. And um, (laughs) I perceive this is my most boring message that maybe I've ever brought. And so i got to apologize in advance. I don't believe myself to be a sinner, but it's very important. (laughs) The title of my sermon is Christian, and this ought to be an interesting reaction. There's different reactions to this, but the title is Christian Patriotism. Christian Patriotism. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 to 7. It says, let everyone be subject to government, governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For in for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. Everybody say amen. For the authority of God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I'm going to go and read this in the contemporary English version, which is a paraphrase, just to give you a good flavor. So relax. That was NIV. It says, Obey the rulers who have authority over you. Only God can give authority to anyone, and he puts these rulers in place of power. The people who oppose the authorities are opposing what God has done. And they will be punished. Rulers are a threat to evil people, not to good people. There's no need to be afraid of the authorities. Just do right, and they will praise you for it. After all, they're God's servants, and it's their duty to help you. If you do something wrong, you ought to be afraid because these rulers have the right to punish you. They're God's servants who punish criminals to show how angry God is. But you should obey the rulers because you know it's the right thing to do, not just because of God's anger. You must also pay your taxes. The authorities of God are God's servants. It's their duty to take care of these matters. Pray, or I'm sorry, pay all that you owe, whether it's taxes, fees, respect, or honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Lord, I ask that you just bless this message, Lord God. Father, I pray that you order it rightly, Lord God, that your spirit, Lord God, would speak through it. Oh, Father, that you would uh, strengthen your church, Lord God. Strengthen our resolve, Lord. 
Oh, Father, I just pray right now that you speak through this message. In your name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This is a very interesting passage. And um, when we when we think of the word patriotism, it immediately brings thoughts that are different to everybody. In fact, the definition of patriotism from one person to another may be totally different. And uh, sometimes it's just like a blind... Um, for some people, how many believe that it's like a blind loyalty to my country, whatever country, that's my country, and it's a blind loyalty? How many believe that some people, that's the definition of patriotism, a blind loyalty without even, you know, and then some people say, well, I have a hard time with patriotism because it, um, there's things in my country I don't agree with, things that I'm not comfortable with, things I wouldn't put my approval on, so I have difficulty with pa- patriotism. And then some would say, well, patriotism, that's above God, and I don't put anything above God, not even patriotism, that's idolatry. How many think all of these views come to the surface when we hear the word patriotism? And so I want to discuss, I feel like it's important enough on a Sunday morning to preach about patriotism and what it means and, and what the um, uh, expectation of patriotism should be for the Christian and what are the limitations? How many know both are important? And here's a definition of patriotism. Love for one's country, the passion which aims to serve one's country, either in defending it from invasion or protecting its rights and maintaining its laws and institutions in vigor and purity. Patriotism is the characteristic of a good citizen, the noblest passion that animates a man in the character of a citizen. Now, there are some dangers if we don't have patriotism, and there's dangers if our patriotism crosses the line. And so we've got to be very careful as Christians to understand the expectation of a good citizen who loves the Lord and where it crosses the line and and goes into the territory that is rendered to God and not Caesar. So in order to do this, there have been countless debates in our country leading up to 1776 when we made our Declaration of Independence. And so what I'm going to attempt today and pray for me today, because this can become very boring, I hope it's interesting, but it's going to be a very simplified history lesson on patriotism. And that's risky, I know, on a Sunday morning. Do not fall asleep on me. Or you're going to hear something akin to the Liberty Bell is going to wake you up. All right, do not fall asleep. But this particular scripture, in fact, the word patriotism actually has its roots in the early 1700s. And the word is actually associated with a group of people called, you guessed it, patriots. So I'm going to talk about two, and this is going to be a very simplified history because if I became more detailed, it would take way longer than I'm already going to take. Praise the Lord. Everybody say amen. (laughs) But these are very important discussions because as you begin to read this scripture here, there are some biblical concerns about 
our support of government and war and our nation and our policies and our beliefs and how we do things. And so we have to address those issues and those scriptures. And Romans 13 was the scripture that was the heart, at the heart of the debate of the American Revolution. This particular scripture had a group of people called loyalists that looked at this scripture and they said, never do you go against the governing body and rebel. And so they looked at this scripture, and this is a scripture written by Paul, and it's during a period of time around the late 50s A.D., and this is not the period of time. He's writing actually from Corinth, and literally during this period of time, Paul is very well protected by the laws. In fact, a lot of the places he went, some were, they would turn a blind eye, they allowed him to be beaten, thrown out of city, but he lived and they thought he was dead. Uh, sometimes he was illegally arrested. He always had illegal trials. He always um, got arrested for uh, practicing his freedom of religion. How I many know that? He was arrested and he was a lawbreaker because of his freedom of religion. So immediately I have problems with the person that wrote this. Because he's saying, be the best citizen you can possibly be. Never rebel because that's how a child of God does it. But everywhere he goes, what does he do? He exercises his freedom of religion. And so it flies against, but Paul, in every way, was a model citizen. Everywhere that he went, everything that he did, every way that he lived his life... He was a model citizen. 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe it's verse 8, Peter says the same thing. Be obedient to governing authorities. Model a good citizen in every way. Don't break the laws, because if you break the laws, you're breaking the laws of God, and you're not a good citizen. Peter was also arrested for breaking the law and exercising his freedom of religion. In fact, as we begin to go through the Bible, we begin to see that they have a regular history of this. How many know that Moses was in Egypt and the, the, the one thing that he demanded of Pharaoh was what? Freedom of religion. We're going to go worship God in the, in the wilderness and we need you to let us worship our God. Daniel was a model citizen. How many would agree? Daniel was arrested because they said he couldn't pray to his God and he broke the law and prayed to his God because freedom of religion. The judges, the book of Judges, as you follow the book of Judges, there would be an oppressive, wicked leader over the people and what would God do? God would always raise up a leader to deliver him from the oppression of that leader. And so we begin to look at this pattern and this precedent set by the Bible, and there were several arguments. In fact, there's still arguments that I want to address. And here's one quote from somebody that I think is a very good Bible teacher and a very good, uh, somebody I really respect as a Bible teacher, but I think he's absolutely wrong. This is John MacArthur on this scripture. 
People have mistakenly linked democracy and political freedom to Christianity. That's why many contemporary evangelicals believe the American Revolution was completely justified both politically and scripturally. They follow the argument of the Declaration of Independence, which declares life, liberty, pursuit of happiness as divinely endowed rights. But such a position is contrary to the clear teachings of Romans 13, 1-7. So the United States was actually born out of a violation of New Testament principles, and any blessing God has bestowed on America has come in spite of their disobedience. And this kind of teaching directly attacks our um, resolve to hold on to the precious freedom that our nation fought for and attained. In fact, there is a precious freedom that around the world we're willing to fight for other nations to experience it. Right now, if you're in North Korea, you don't get a trial that is fair. Right now, your family has no rights. Right now, you have no ability to worship, no freedom to say the name of God, no freedom to worship. This morning, we can play our music as loud as we want. We can worship as loud as we want. We can say anything we want to say. We have freedoms that we don't even uh, realize and we don't even appreciate that they would love to have around the world. And I can tell you this morning, it's God-given and it's worth fighting for. I told you it'd be boring. But I'm passionate about this. And sometimes when it comes to our Christian patriotism, we do what's called throwing the baby away with the bathwater. We're willing to throw away the precious freedom that is God-given And fought for with the blood and the foundation of many, 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 many people. Some of you in this room. And we want to throw it away. Because we have a wrong ideal about what our patriotism should be. And so this morning I want to address why they were called patriots. And he's excited about this. I can tell he's got a mind for history. I know he does. He has no choice. (laughs) So the dilemma that the founding fathers were faced with was to rebel or not to rebel. That was the question, regardless of what Shakespeare says. To rebel or not to rebel. And so to figure out how did they get in this position and why were they making the decisions they were making, we have to go back in history a little bit. How many know some of the sermons of the Bible, the greatest sermons preached in the Bible were recounting history? And sometimes as Christians, we don't take time to learn history And by not learning history, we suffer. And so we have to understand history. So let me begin to tell you the 
what, what happened in history before 1776? You're like, oh no, here we go. It's going to be a long road. Let me start in a very important moment. Okay, and I could choose a lot of places, but I'm trying to keep it really simplified here. In about 1452, no, Columbus did not sell the ocean blue. That was last week. 1452, a man by the name of Gutenberg created a movable press where he was able to print Bibles on a very large scale. And because of that printing press, his first printing, he printed 180 Bibles. Now the Bibles previously, that power was not allowed to be in the hands of the common people. And the reason why it couldn't be put in the hands of the common people is because that book in its pages spoke nothing but life, liberty, and freedom. And if they were to get a hold of that book and start believing what that book says and realize that book is for them, all the power of government and the church would be destroyed. So they were very protective of who had access to a Bible. But in 1452, just from the first printing on Gutenberg's press... 180 Bibles that were 1,300 pages apiece were immediately printed. Can you imagine the power of those 180 Bibles getting into the hands of the common people? So 1452, this is a big deal. And of course we know 40 years later, Christopher Columbus does sell the ocean blue and begins to discover new lands, which is where we come into the picture. And so that new land was being settled by Spaniards and French and British. And everybody was going to this new world and establishing colonies. And so there were lots of different types of people that were going to this land. But there was a specific group of people. They were, in in fact, uh, in 1517, okay, this is about 70 years after that, the Bibles were mass printed. There was a man by the name of Martin Luther in Germany. And Martin Luther was a very devout Catholic. And the Bible just had such an impact on society. People were beginning to realize that the things that we believed in the Catholic Church are wrong. They, be- they began to believe they were misleading people away from God, not to God. And Luther was a devout Catholic, and, and, and he began to notice, in fact, he made his way to Rome, and, and he began to study uh, what it meant to be free in Christ, and, and God began to give him revelation that they're leading you astray, they're leading you astray, there needs to be reform, there needs to be reform. And Martin Luther, in 1517 A.D., nailed 95 different theses 95 different things, and he nailed it to the door, and basically it was all the areas that he felt like they were misleading people away from God. And so there began to be a great reforming spirit uh, among people. Common people began to 
um, realized that what we're being taught isn't the Word of God. And there began to be a spirit of reform in the world. And things were beginning to change dramatically. And and in the area of uh, England, there was a man by the name of um, uh, Henry VIII. And this is uh, 1530 AD. And I know this is boring. I hope, is everybody following me? 1530, just about 13 years after uh, Martin Luther in Germany, the Church of England separated from the Catholic Church. They became the Anglican Church of England. And they were led by King um, Henry VIII. Henry VIII had no desire for reform. Henry VIII had no desire... Uh, to see a more pure church, Henry VIII was getting a divorce. The Catholic Church would not sanction his divorce. So he decided, I'm going to be the head of the church. And he started his own. And he pulled in the reformers who were more than willing to separate from the Catholic Church. So now you had a church in England that was headed by King Henry VIII. Now I'm going somewhere this. Stay with me. So King Henry had a daughter named Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I. Queen Elizabeth I brought in the Catholic elements with the Protestant elements, plus they were the head of the church. So through all of these brutal monarchies in the Church of England, they had a church established, and if you didn't do exactly what the Church of England said you should do, you were murdered. There were many brutal murders, tortures. Um, I mean, there at one at one point um, during Saint Bartholomew's massacre, there were a hundred and ten thousand Protestants that were murdered at one time, and so it was very brutal, very uh, much led by a national church who literally would listen to everything you say. And if it was something different than what they want taught, out with them. And so those reformers were reading the word of God and they were beginning to uh, see something different. And men like uh, Calvin came along. And Calvin came and then Calvin sent John Knox. And, and actually the king of uh, England at the time, uh, James I, who was the son of Queen Elizabeth I, James I... He um, began to sanction a group to, to, to make a Bible. And it was called the King James Bible. Now, James was a wicked man. James wasn't a good man. James sanctioned the King James Bible because all of the people read the Geneva Bible from Calvin and Knox. And the Geneva Bible said we should be free. We should have freedom of religion. We should have freedom from this church, this national church. We should be able to preach the gospel freely. We should be able to teach freely. We should be able to have our own leaders in the church and an eldership that leads this church. And and they were preaching the gospel, but James said, no. I'm going to sanction this group of people to make this Bible. They called it the authorized version. We call it the King James Version. But those people said, no, we only read the Geneva Bible. Because Geneva Bible had all the notes from the reformers in it. Everything that they taught, everything they believed, everything that they would, they, they, they basically lost their life for. They were being murdered and 
their houses, without even uh, a warrant for a search, their houses were being ransacked. They were being murdered. They never had a fair trial. They never had an ability to freely teach anything. And so during the time of Elizabeth, this group of people began to emerge called the Puritans. And the Puritans believed that we should purely teach the Bible. We should purely have a freedom to preach, a freedom to teach, a freedom to preach the gospel without intervention. And by the way, King James was um, a wicked man with homosexual tendencies. He was a bad man. All right? You say, well, I thought I was in a King James only church, 1611. Do your homework. All right? The Protestants, it's a good version. It's a very good version. But it was the bishops of the Anglican church that published the Bible, and it was a very good um, rendering of the Hebrew and the Greek. Very good scholars did it. But the uh, Protestants, they still held on to the Geneva Bible with all those notes that they died writing and were persecuted for. And so these groups of people end up over here. They're leaving religious persecution. And throughout every one of these persecutions, they're writing famous sermons. And I can give you the list of them. And if you want them and want to research them, but ministers from the time of Luther and time of Knox, time of Calvin, time all these people that were persecuted and died for their faith, bringing the truth to the people and trying to avoid a national religion and wicked people running their church. How would you like to have the king of England running your church and he's a homosexual man? And so they were very adamant about this devotion to God, devotion to the word, devotion to serving God freely and preaching freely. And this reformation was taking over the entire world. And so they end up around 1620s, I may be wrong on that, their first settlement. And so there's a mixture of a lot of different people, and they began to um, develop the 13 colonies. And then they come to the point where they've had 170 years of theological teaching on is it right to rebel or is it not right to rebel. And these sermons were cited by our founding fathers as their reasons for declaring their independence. They cited the sermons through the St. Bartholomew Massacre, through the barbaric uh, murders of of Christians who were persecuted by their, for their faith and dying for their faith, and illegal searches, illegal seizures, control of the government over what you speak and what you say and what you do. And they came from that environment and came here, and they said no more. And all of the sermons gave theological teaching on why it is right to rebel when authorities do not obey God in their administration. And I happen to agree with these foundations and all of these sermons that when there is a tyrannical government that is not doing the will of God and a people is able to rebel. Now Jesus did say, count your numbers. 
He says, if you see an army that has 20,000 and you have 1,000, don't go to battle. But if you have the ability, stand up to what is wrong. Stand up for what is right. And these people began to stand up for what they believed was right. And they did not want to go back to what they experienced in the old world. They wanted a nation that was for the people, by the people, and of the people. And what they had before wasn't. It was a monarch that basically did his will and there was no justice, no freedom, no ability whatsoever to live for God peaceably. And everywhere you see a Christian, you have to understand, everywhere you see a believer in the Old Testament and a Christian, they always stand up when God's rule is overruled. When the, when, when the ch- early church first began to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, they immediately pulled him into the authorities and said, do not speak that name again. That is a rule from a governing body. And they said, how can we not? How can we not speak his name? And they immediately began to speak his name again. And everywhere they went, they basically rebelled against the rule. And they stood up and said, we will speak. And so now I begin to ask you, patriotism. As we look at what is patriotism and what are we patriotic about, one of the things that I center my thoughts around first is the First Amendment. You say, praise the Lord, I'm in church and we're talking about history. In fact, I saved you a lot of time. I just went through all of the debate and sermons about is it right to stand up? Is it right not to rebel? Is it right to have physical confrontment? I saved you all that. But the Bible, one of the things that we can be very patriotic about is what's called the five freedoms of the First Amendment. And as you look through the Bible, you realize right now um, it's said in that passage that they, um, if you are obeying the law, they won't bother you, they will commend you. But if you're not obeying the law, they will enforce God's law. Well, what happens when it's a tyrant who is your king? What happens when it is somebody who doesn't obey God and does the exact opposite. What happens when you're in North Korea or the old Soviet Union or you're in Iran or, uh, you know, patriotism is protecting from those who are wanting to take our freedom away. How many know that right now Sharia law wants to take our freedom away? That is a threat to what we believe and what we hold dear. And we are in danger of throwing those freedoms away because we refuse to be patriotic to those ideals. And as we look through the history of the world, those five freedoms that I'm going to talk about in a moment, those five freedoms uh, give freedom for the gospel to be preached. 
In fact, uh, we, we uh, waste away our freedoms because we don't preach the gospel. But the, but the five freedoms that, that were enshrined in our First Amendment, in fact, there's a place uh, in downtown Evansville called the Four Freedoms Monument. And it's a little misleading because the fifth freedom is actually surrounding the monument. And so the five freedoms are freedom of religion. You say, man, should I be patriotic and hold that dear? Freedom of religion. In fact, it's a two-parter. It says anybody should be able to practice their religion freely. And the second one was kind of important to them. Um, you're not, they're not going to establish a state religion. I mean, oh, that was important to our founding fathers that somebody doesn't establish a state religion. And it was also important that you could practice your religion. You know, in some places, you don't have that right, you go underground. Some places, you have the numbers, you fight for that right. Sometimes, but, but the freedom of religion is very critical. The fact that we can walk into a place and we can worship freely is a freedom that people bought and died for. If you've ever looked at the Declaration of Independence, Google sometime what happened to the lives of those people that signed it. Fifty-six people signed that declaration. They swore their life, their fortune, and their sacred honor. A lot of those people had money. A lot of those people died bankrupt. A lot of those people died in rags. A lot of those people died in poverty. A lot of them lost their homes. A lot of them lost their sons. A lot of them lost their daughters. A lot of them lost their own lives. Those 56 people that put their name on that line, the Declaration of Independence gave their blood so we could have the right to worship God. How many know God is pleased that we have the right to worship Him? How many know that's a God-given right to accept Him or reject Him? How many know it's a God-given right to be an heir or to teach correctly? And God has given us that right, and not only did the people that signed the Declaration of Independence fight for you to have that right, but people in this room fought for your right. Every time I look at a flag, I think of all the people. Man, you look at the Civil War. I think it was 500,000 people died in the Civil War. The Vietnam War, World War I, World War II. Think how many people lost their lives for our freedom. And every time I tell my boys, every time I look at a flag and they do the, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, I, I always picture the red stripes with blood dripping off of it. Because so many people have died. So many people have been maimed. So many people's lives have been changed because they went and fought our freedom. And so we should be patriotic because of the freedoms, freedom of speech. You know, in a lot of nations right now today, if you tried to say what was on your mind about the government, you wouldn't survive very long. They would turn a blind eye to you. And in a lot of these countries, that's why they're considered evil and bad. Because they don't allow anybody to say anything negative about those in authority. I mean, no, that's what they came from. They came from a place where a monarchy could kill you on the spot if you said something negative about him. And so they fought to have freedom of speech. 
that freedom of assembly. That means we can get together right now in other countries. And you say this, in fact, I think, uh, Chaz, you were telling me just the other day. He said he was in what nation? Czech Republic. And he said every time you have a church service, a clergyman has to send in the back to make sure what you're saying, right? Make sure it's what they approve for you to say. I mean, in a lot of nations, there's not freedom of assembly. The way you say things, the way you do things, you have to do it a certain way or you're in a lot of trouble. The Bill of Rights, 10 amendments there to, uh, to the Constitution, our Bill of Rights says you have a right to a speedy trial. You know how many nations will give you a trial, but whenever we feel like it? True. You say, well, come on. Really? We don't appreciate what we have. We're not patriotic about these rights that were fought for. You say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's because it's not your daughter or your son. We have a right to a speedy trial. We have a right to have a defense. We have a right to have a fair jury. You say, man, doesn't everybody do that? No, you, you, you don't understand where you live. We have a right to not have excessive fines, excessive bail. We have all these rights that are enshrined that people fought for, and we're not patriotic to protect it. You say, well, I thought it was about a country, blindly following country. No, it's ideals, it's beliefs. It's that we believe that you should have the freedom to worship. We believe everybody should have the freedom of speech. We believe everybody should have the ability to worship God freely. Praise God, amen. You guys with me on this? Or are you going to throw stones at me? Praise the Lord. Some people say, but what about Jesus' passive scriptures? Somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Well, have you read all of his passages? Because what he's saying in Romans there is, always be obedient as an individual to the laws. Don't ever be a bad citizen But render to God what is God's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. Be obedient to the law unless it crosses the line and goes into the things of God. Then put your foot down. Jesus also said, you should go buy a sword. He said, you got your money bag, you got your tunic. He said, now if you don't have a sword to protect yourself, sell some things and go buy one to protect yourself. You say, well, I don't know about that right to bear arms. Jesus encouraged them to protect themselves. In as much as you're persecuted, mistreated, taught badly, or treated badly, God says, forgive them, love them. But God also says, protect yourself, protect your family, fight for your country, fight for your beliefs. Fight for the ones you love. Jesus in no way says when it comes to imminent danger, don't protect yourself. He says, go buy a sword. In fact, 
Not only did he say, buy a sword, they were walking around with them on them. How do I know? Because Peter pulled his out, cut a guy's ear off, said, no, uh, he said, you're outnumbered here, Peter, basically. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. You're not going to last very long. He healed the man's ear and said, put it back in your sheath. It wasn't like he didn't see Peter had it. If he was a pacifist, he would have said, no wearing of swords on your hip, Peter. But he had such a big sword. It wasn't a pocket knife. It'd be hard to cut that ear off with a pocket knife, right? Jesus was telling them to protect themselves, protect their families. Jesus, um, so I began to look, what are some of the things that we can be patriotic for? And what are some of the things that are dangerous? I'm skipping to the end. Love of the union. You know, we all came together as a nation in a world that was really messed up. You say, well, America had problems when we founded. The world had problems. But when you look at the solution they came up together with, the Declaration of Independence, the the Constitution for Equal Rights, you say, well, man, everybody wasn't treated equal when we did that. But how many know that the problems of the world were also there in that room with them? And that was a road to freedom for everybody. That was a road to freedom for every group to be equal. It was a foundation was being laid in those issues. Can I tell you something? The issues for freedom were being debated at that first Continental Congress. In fact, there were a large group of people that said, we need to deal with some of the peoples in our union that aren't being treated equal. And the response was, we need everybody on board right now in this union in order to fight the British. And they decided that if we raise that issue right now, the southern people would go this way, the northern people would go that way, and we wouldn't be a strong enough union to fight the British. And so that issue was not dealt with during that period of time. That issue they tried to deal with multiple times. Christians, abolitionists tried to deal with the issue. Eventually the issue was dealt with about 80 years later at the cost of more lives than any war that we've ever fought. And the freedom was purchased and equality was heading down that road. Same thing for women. How many know that there weren't equal rights for women when we signed that? But how many know the road was paved to change in America what other countries weren't doing yet? And they were trying to fight for equal rights for women, equal rights for everybody in our nation. The Declaration of Independence was a very unique document that the world didn't have at that point. And so we have a loyalty to the ideals of freedom for everybody, fair trials for everybody, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. And was it perfect? No, but we can't lose it. Because we're the last bastion of freedom in the world. I mean, no, that's true. Whenever we have a patriotic event, like we had on the 4th of July, and we've had with most every president from all the way back, 
When they see the power of the U.S. military, how many know that dictators shake in their boots? People that are doing wrong around the world fear the freedom that we offer to their people. People aren't trying to get out of our nations. You say, well, man, are the immigrants being treated well? They're not fighting to get out of our nation. They're fighting to get in our nation. What does that tell you? They're running from oppression. They're running from fear. They're running from, are we perfect? No, but we have a set of ideals that the world wants and the world needs. Number two, love of God. There's freedoms that we have in God that the world needs to hear. I have a loyalty to, I have a patriotism to our country because our country has a loyalty to God that most nations don't have. You say, well, there's a wicked part of our nation too. I agree. But right now, we're one of the few nations that actually stands with Israel. We're one of the few nations that gives a freedom of religion. We're one of the few nations, those precious things that we're holding on to, that we used to be. God wants us to hold on to those because we can't throw away the baby with the bathwater. There's precious things that every enemy in the world that's against God wants it to be gone. They want the Christians gone. They want the Christian history gone. They want the Christian beliefs gone. The Christian ideals gone. And they'll be happy if the United States exists, but minus the Christian ideals. So we can be patriot, patriotic toward that. I mean, oh, there's a patriotism for the land that you grew up on. How many have ever been out of this country or out of your hometown and you, and you just say, man, I'm happy to be home? And you say, well, what is this love of land and love of family? It's the responsibility of every man, woman, and child who is a Christian to love their family and love the place where they live and want God's best for their country. That is a patriotism we should all have. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation. The Bible says that if we have a righteousness and we do the right thing is what righteousness means. If we do the right thing, God will exalt us. You say, well, I thought we were God's favorite. I'm going to get into that in a minute. Righteousness exalts a nation. So if we love our family and we love our land, we want God's will to be done in our country. And that's a patriotism. How many know that's true? I'm going to stand up for God's word in my nation because I care about my nation. What are some areas where patriotism is wrong? Number one, when it's placed above your loyalty to God. The Bible says in Philippians 3.20, but your citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your citizenship in heaven is greater than your citizenship in this world. And so if your citizenship in the United States ever exceeds your love for God and your citizenship in heaven, 
you're in the wrong. Amen? It's wrong when it doesn't recognize equality before God. When you consider you or your nation better than others, you should never have a view that God loves us more than others or desires to save us, but not others. How many of you know there's a patriotism that can make you feel like you're better than other people? There's a patriotism that says that God values our lives more than He values the lives of other nations. And if that's what your patriotism is, that you're better than somebody else, or God loves us more, or God wants to save us more, or we're God's favorite, your patriotism has gone in the wrong direction. Because our patriotism should say, let's do the right thing so God can bless all the nations. That was the call to Abraham. I want to bless all the nations through you, and it's God's call still today. We're not better than anybody else. We can only stand for what's right and let God bless us. Number three, your patriotism has gone wrong when you don't acknowledge failures. We should constantly acknowledge our failures and constantly be repentant before God and eager and courageous to correct the failures of our nation. How many know that? Never say to yourself, our nation is always right and everything we do is always right. Always question authorities is what the patriots would say. Always measure what we're doing with the Word of God, and if it doesn't measure up, then our nation is wrong. And we need to be courageous with our lives to correct it. How many know that's true? We can be in the same boat they were in in England if we don't apply ourselves to the Word of God and fasting and praying over our nation. Number four, and the last one everybody said, Amen. When a nation... When your patriotism doesn't recognize God's providence, then your patriotism is wrong. The only thing that can bless this nation is the providence of God over this nation. If God is not allowed in this nation, this nation will fold up so fast. This nation will be... In fact, uh, some people wonder why it already hasn't been judged. But if God is not allowed in this nation, your patriotism is wrong if God is not included in the direction of your nation. If we don't insist upon God guiding and directing our nation, then we are not a patriot. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, I'm thankful, Lord, for the uh, things that we take for granted, Lord. Lord, the freedoms that we don't even realize we have, Lord, until we leave here, Lord. Father, I acknowledge the failures of this union, Lord, this nation. And Father, I just pray that once more, Lord, that you would revive our nation. Lord, that you would bring revival, Lord God. This nation has lived on revivals, Lord God, has been changed by revivals, Lord God. Father, you filled your people with your spirit in this nation, Lord God. Father, I pray for a room of good citizens, Lord God. Citizens who obey the laws as far as man 
but cry out to God for something different, Lord. Father, something more, Lord God. Father, I pray that your spirit would flow through your people, Lord God. They would be people of action, Lord God, not not a passive people, Lord. But they would stand up for you, Lord. Pray for our nation, Lord. Father, actively change our nation when it's off course, Lord God. Oh, Father, we pray today for our nation, Lord. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord God. Father, focus us back on you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Church, we're going to... Worship team's already up here. That's amazing. They just, they appeared there. Amazing. Uh, we're just going to, we're going to worship for one song. We're going to take communion. Let's just take one song. And can we just pray for our nation? Repent for our nation. Can we do that? Can everybody do that? Stand to your feet if you would. Pray for our nation. And then we're going to take communion together. church you pray for President Obama you pray for President Trump you pray for your governors you pray for your House of Representatives we pray for our Senate because we're all in this together we're all trying to do the will of God through government because he instituted it for that purpose and that's what we're praying for church if you would, we're going to take communion. I'm going to have you come forward.
Uh, remember, we have an open policy here. If you're a believer, whether you attend this church or not, if you're a believer, you're welcome to take communion with us. Make sure you're in Christ. Praise the Lord, examine yourself and make sure you're in Christ. If you're not, I'll be here to pray with you today. If you just come forward, I will start up here in the front. Uh, just come and you're, you can serve yourself here. couple of my men. Randy, would you mind helping me with the reading? You okay with that? JT, you help me with the reading? study with some some of my leaders and uh, we've been training for quite a while every week uh, we take communion and I wish we did it more often because I don't know about you guys but when I take communion and we're getting ready to study the Bible it makes me suddenly aware there's an awareness that I need to be obedient to Christ just the sense of my responsibility and how small I am in God's presence and how much responsibility there is to live up to what He did for me. So as you take that, I want you to feel that. We're the body of Christ. And He's done so much for us. We want to be faithful in our generation to be faithful to Him back. And uh, they're going to help me today and uh, so Randy if you would could you read the uh, first passage there for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed he took bread when he given thanks he broke it and said this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, the greatest gift you've ever given us, could ever give us, is your beloved Son. Lord, his body was broken for us. Lord, we were in we were in our muck and our mire when we were sin. When we didn't know that we needed you, you came and died for us. Father, we thank you for the brokenness. Thank you for the life now that you've given us through your Son. Lord, we are grateful for what you've done for us. We thank you for how you love us. And Lord, we love you. We take now this bread and we partake in the name of Jesus Christ. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of 
bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, we're so humbled to be able to God stand in your presence and stand in your grace. God, and we can do that because of Lord, because of, of, of your sacrifice. God, to cleanse us and to cover us and to say, I've paid for you, God. God, I thank you so much for that. Lord, I thank you that, um, God, I thank you that you forgive us. God, as we take the cup, that we remember it. Lord, that every day we would thank you for that forgiveness, for that love, God, that you shed for us, God. Lord, I just pray these things in your sense. Praise the Lord. Isn't the Lord good? Praise the Lord. I was very nervous about preaching this message today. I uh, About 1.46 this morning, almost 2 a.m., I told the Lord, I can't preach. <laughs> They're going to be bored to death. And I woke up at about 6 a.m. God said, no, that's what I want you to preach. And uh, so I, I appreciate God giving us a message this morning. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be upon your people to do your will in this world around us, Lord. Though it's dark, Lord God, Father, and there's so much wickedness around us, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would make us agents of change, Lord. Lord, that we would seek your face, Lord God. Oh, we'd be sensitive to your spirit, Lord. Bless your people, Lord God. Pour your spirit upon them, Lord God. Revive our nation, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said...